Good afternoon, Soul Church. It's nice to be here with you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would conform us to your likeness and you would help us to hear from you today. Please speak through me, your servant. Amen. This week we've heard the words of the Lord of Jesus, the Lord Jesus to the church of Pergamum. And though the church of Pergamum has long since gone, the words that he offers us here today remain relevant to us. Indeed, as we move through all of these letters to the churches in Asia Minor, we see a series of things which are commended by Christ, but also other things that are criticized by Christ. And so as we move through these blueprints or these case studies of churches, we must ask ourselves the question, are we falling into these traps of the churches that we see here? Or can we um, be confident that the Lord would be proud of us for some of the good things that he lifts up in these passages? But here in particular in the church of Pergamum, we are asked the following question. Are we possessing faith in Christ, but not practicing faithfulness to him? So do we have faith, but are we compromising our faith with certain practices? Three headings will guide us as we examine this text this afternoon. And in the custom of Presbyterianism, it all begins with R. Respect, repent, reward. Respect, repent, and reward. So let's start with some context. Pergamum was a major city within the Asia Minor region, which is modern-day Turkey. And the city of Pergamum sits on a city called Bergama, so a similar kind of name. Pergamum had a population ranging between 100,000 and 200,000. So it's close in size to the greater Hobart region, which is around 240,000. Pergamum was known for its affiliation with the Roman Empire. It had sided with Rome to help defeat other uh, powers within the region and thus it earned the empire's favour. Pergamum was also known for being a religious city. Behind Pergamum there was a mountain and upon it was all these different temples. It was like that roundabout at Kingston with all the fast food joints. Any god you wanted you could find there. Zeus... Uh, and I won't be able to pronounce this, Asclepius, he's the god of healing, the, the snake imagery we see with medicine comes from there. But more importantly, perhaps, the empire, the emperor was worshipped here. This city was one of the first in the region to build a temple to worship the emperor. And in fact, it had around three there. So it was a religious centre. It was a, a heart of the empire in the region but also it was a centre of learning. It had a library which housed in excess of 180,000 books. So it rivalled the great library of Alexandria. In verse 12, we, we see the opening of the letter. And there we read this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here the Lord Jesus, as he does in the other letters to the churches, uh, draws attention to certain parts of his character or his nature in order to draw attention to something that that church is lacking or that they need to take heed and consider. In this case, it's the wielding of the double-edged sword. You might remember in the first sermon that David brought to us, Christ in chapter 1 is um, uh, depicted as having the two-edged sword coming from out of his mouth. 
And we see also later here in verse 16, I believe, the same imagery. This introduction sets the tone for the message. Just like the police say, I'm armed or I have a weapon in the movies, we know that it's serious. They're going to ram down the door and potentially use force if necessary. And this is what the Lord Jesus is saying here. This is not a ceremonial sword which would be strapped to his side as we see in military processions. The Lord Jesus has the sword drawn and he's willing to use it if necessary. We must sit up straight to the words of Jesus here. And it's, it's fitting that we now should consider how are you perceiving the Lord Jesus? The way in which you and I see God in our mind and in our hearts will determine how we respond to him and indeed practice our faith. The temptation for us in the West, isn't it, to be relaxed with Jesus. We can take the Jesus doesn't mind attitude because he's already done the work on the cross and he's up there in heaven with God. He doesn't mind if we sin. But in Hebrews, we read that God disciplines those he loves. God is patient and merciful, but he also is holy. And we must remember that our God is a holy God and expects you and me to be holy too. Respect. Jesus' first point to the Pergamum church is one of praise, showing his respect for their perseverance. In verse 13, we read, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We see here that the Lord praises the church for keeping their faith in him amidst in this city which is full of demonic presence and persecution. First, this city was said to be uh, the throne of Satan and that Satan was also said to dwell in this city. Now, there's disagreement as to what the throne of Satan is. Some say it was that big Zeus temple that I mentioned. There was a big statue of him. Uh, others think that it refers to the Pergamon altar. And I should have actually brought a picture. That altar was this huge religious temple and it's actually found in a museum in Berlin. But others say that it's most likely referring to the fact that this is the seat of the emperor worship in the region. At the very least, we can agree that the, the city of Pergamum is known for being a religious centre of false worship. Satan, we read, has his headquarters in their home city. And it's important for us to be reminded that we live in a world where Satan still operates. As Presbyterians and as evangelical Christians, we can often dismiss this because we hear some weird teachings coming out of churches or some people overemphasize that, um, you know, Satan is in your phone, Satan is in your teacup. And so it means that we dismiss his work in the world. But Revelation as a book draws attention again and again to the fact that overwhelmingly there is a spiritual battle at play that there is a connection between social, cultural, spiritual powers with it, excuse me, within the Roman Empire. And though Jesus wins, and he has won decisively 
on the cross, and we read later in Revelation, he will crush the serpent underfoot. Battles still go on today. And though Satan is a finite being, we read in Job that he can only move here and there around the world, he's still at work. He's at work in false religions. He is at work in false teaching in Christian, in Christian churches and through false teachers. So we, we, we must be angry. We must have a reaction to these false religions that are in our world. We must have a reaction to the false teaching that is across the Christian world. In our culture, we must be tolerant, tolerant, tolerant. That's just your view. That's just my view. But we must remember that it's Satan who is behind these religions, and he's pulling people into hell. We must remember that. Satan is at work. But we also see Jesus' praise here. Jesus praises them for keeping their faith amidst persecution. So as you know, within the Roman world, it was uh, illegal or mm, it was really not publicly acceptable to be a Christian and people were martyred for the faith. And part of that linked to the fact that there was that insistence on worshipping the emperor. And I know that can sound odd to us because we don't care about our politicians, but for Rome, the thumb of, and the feel of the emperor was across his empire. And we see here that someone died for their faith. Antipas was killed. And it's important to note that Antipas is named the writer could have said, someone in your midst has died, but he didn't. He said that Antipas, my faithful servant, this is someone they would have known. They would have been hearing this letter being read to them and they would say, that was my brother Antipas who died. And so the question that we must ask ourselves, friends, is would we still be at church today if one of our friends was killed last week. And the problem with asking this as a point of application is that it can too easily be brushed away as a hypothetical or as the preacher being clever or manipulative. But we just need to look around the world. Last week, four people were killed in the Congo for being Christians. And that's just a quick Google search on my part. But if we looked more... Uh, uh, with, with more diligence, we would find that many of our brethren are being killed around the world. What happens if someone at Crossroads was killed last week? Would you come to church? We must ask God for courage and strength because what we experience here now, this peacetime, might not always be within our lifetime. And we must cling to the fact that if that is the case, Jesus will praise you. He will respect you for persevering with him. Isn't it wonderful when someone important in your life, maybe your boss or your professor or your spouse or your parent, gives you praise for something that you've done? Maybe for persevering through your degree or staying in a hard job or battling a, a period of sickness so much greater is the praise of the Lord Jesus himself. 
And so if you're here today in a family that hates Jesus and you're the only one in your family, know that Jesus smiles on you for your perseverance. If you are being belittled in your workplace because you're a Christian, know that Jesus sees what you're doing for him and you have his respect. When we are slandered, we must remember that we persevere to the praise of God. Repent. Our second point. Jesus turns in to offer some criticisms. So the teachers in the room will know that you give an opening of encouragement and then you give some criticism and then you give some encouragement on the end. So Jesus turns to them and offers some criticism. Look in verse 14. I have a few things against you and both relate to uh, false teaching and we see this across verses 14 and 15. So let's look at them together. The first one uh, pertains or relates to Balaam and Balak. Uh, not Barack Obama, Balak. And you might remember um, these two men from the book of Numbers, from verses 22 to 25, and then again at tw- uh, 31 as well. And you might remember the story of the talking donkey. This is um, that prophet. So Balak was the king of the Moabites, and he, um, he saw Israel fighting the nations around him, and he was threatened by them. And so he sought out Balaam, who was known for his ability to to curse other people and be successful at it. And so he tried to employ Balaam to curse. And on several occasions, um, Balak set up these um, altars so that Balaam could perform the curse. And in each case, rather than cursing the Israelites, he he blessed the Israelites. And you can uh, go home and and read that. It's a wonderful um, sign of God's power. Um, But this isn't to say that um, the prophet is a good man. Uh, In chapter 31 of Numbers, we read that he was the man behind the Moabite women who, in chapter 25, we read, went into Israel, seduced them, and brought them into immorality and idolatry. And they ended up worshipping Baal instead of God Almighty. Now, throughout Revelation and indeed in the New Testament, we see Old Testament imagery being used as like an archetype or uh, a way of describing someone performing something in the way of that person. So we know of Jezebel, for example, that's one. Um, But we also see that this is what's being done here. And in 2 Peter, you can see Balaam also being used again as a false uh, prophet. Um, we also see, though, the Nicolaitans, and this is where it's get hard, it gets harder. It's, it's not clear who these were. Um, some have suggested that it might be Nicholas of Antioch, who you read of in Acts 6, Acts chapter 6. But at the very least, we see that this is a movement which is around the teaching of it's okay to be involved in immorality and idolatry in the pagan world around the Christian. So we see here that the people... Uh, of Pergamum are supporting and following the teachings of Balaam and taking part in the idolatry and immorality in the Greco-Roman context. So I know that for us here in Hobart, that sounds weird. We think of a festival when we think of um, the taste festival or a music festival. But for the time, a lot of the um, uh, festivals within that culture was in honour of a deity honouring a God, worshipping God, and there would be food and dance and festival and um, sexual immorality as well in honour of that deity. Of course, the emperor 
was a, an example of a festival for this. Um, we also see too that guilds or the, the tradesmen, the craftsmen, would meet together in meetings and they would have feasts for their members in honour of a deity as well. So it's like you turning up to work and finding the morning tea being in honour of an Indian god, a Hindu god, or another god. And so the honouring of false gods was a normal part of the world around them. And the pressure for the church was to sell out, partake in these festivals, and thereby honour and worship these false gods. So friends, we cannot take part in these kind of festivals that are in honour of another god. It's not just going to have some food with some friends. If there's a festival which is in honour of a false god, you can't partake in it, I can't partake in it, because by doing so, we are honouring that god. Well, that might be easy, you say. I don't do that, so that's fine. Let's move on. Well, how about we consider our own Australian context. As we read through this passage, we must consider that though the gods of Rome and Greece are long since gone to textbooks, we also have idols within our own culture. There is idolatry and immorality within our culture to which each of us are pressured to conform. So an idol is not just a little statue which we worship. An idol is anything we give higher importance or attention to than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. An idol is not just a little statue, but it is anything we give higher importance or attention to than Jesus Christ. With that, our eyes can be opened and we can see that our culture has many, many idols. Comfort, status, success, wealth. Sexual immorality is also a problem in our own culture. And Irene um, hinted to that in her um, presentation earlier. Marriage is no longer the safe place, sorry, it's no longer the sole place of intimacy in our culture, but is now normalised and even expected outside of marriage. Marriage in the West is now seen to be antiquated, and chastity is seen as weird and unusual. So friends, when we adjust our passage to the modern context, we realise that it still applies to us. The acceptance of idols and immorality has seeped into the church around us and has been integrated into many of our churches today. There are pastors and theologians who diminish sexual immorality and idolatry. They either say it's fine or that Jesus doesn't mind or they don't teach on it. There's the prosperity gospel, which I'm sure you're all aware of, the idea that if you follow Jesus, you'll get money and health and success. And there are others um, who say that blatant acts which are against the scriptures are fine. As a Presbyterian church, you know that's part of the reason why the Uniting Church exists. In the Anglican Church, my denomination, the battle has gone from the United States as now before our highest governing authority, uh, by which COVID has prevented, 
but it's something that can break apart the Australian Anglican communion. And so the question is this, are we supporting immorality and idolatry? He warns. Verse 16, we read, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord will come for those who do not repent. It's serious. The word repent means to turn around and change direction. It essentially means to turn one's life around and instead move to Christ and his ways. So we must hear the words of Christ today and heed his counsel. So examine your hearts. Are there any idols in there? Are you valuing Netflix over communion with Christ? If that's so, cancel your membership before you leave the church. You've all got smartphones, cancel it. Are you idolising your spouse more than your saviour? Repent before God today. Are you practising sexual immorality? Repent. Throw out your phone. Cancel your friend. In Proverbs 28, 13, we read these beautiful words. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. This proverb is pointing to Christ. If you repent of your sin and turn to him, he will be merciful to you and you'll find forgiveness and peace with Christ. You need not face him with the drawn sword, but one at his side. And if you have repented of these sins, praise God. Keep pursuing him. Keep uh, maintain this repentance. Our third and final point, you're nearly there, reward. We close with this promise. Look in verse 17. Down the bottom there. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We see here that uh, overcome means to persevere in the faith until death, and it appears many times throughout the book of Revelation. It's a refrain to he who overcomes. And we see the promise is to receive personally from Jesus hidden manna and a white stone. So remember the manner that God provided to his people in the wilderness, in Exodus. This is imagery is being used here. And we can think of the great feast, uh, I think it's in uh, chapter 19 of Revelation, that we see that when we uh, go before God, we will be able to feast with him forever. The great banquet in heaven, a banquet far greater than the pagan feasts of earth. And the white stone likely draws on the practice of the time where they used a white stone in order to get into places. So to go to the movie, you'd have a movie ticket, paper. In those days, you'd have a white stone. Okay. And so for the believer, if you persevere until death, and so uh, this is, uh, 
a sign of you being of Christ. So just like ladies, when you marry, a lot of you will take on your husband's name. It's the same thing here. When we enter into heaven, we receive a new name from Jesus, a nickname, a personal name that only we and he will know. And this fulfills Isaiah 62, where it is written, the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings of your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. That's what we can look forward to, feasting with Christ forever and a personal relationship with God himself. This white stone is better than any Olympic medal. The title that we receive from Jesus is better than being called a doctor or professor or manager or CEO, whatever title you want. This one from Jesus is the best. And so, Christian, hear the words of Christ today. Repent, trust in him. And if you're not a Christian here today, the Lord wants you to repent and trust in him. The offer of forgiveness is open to you today. Christ was executed on the cross to take the penalty that you and I deserve for our crimes against God. After three days, he rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Those who trust in this work of Christ are cleared of their sin. Their sin is no more. And they are made righteous or right in the standing of God. You don't have to earn your way into heaven. Trust in Jesus and all will be well with your soul. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and merciful, and we thank you that you are holy and just. Lord, we now in our hearts bring before you our sin, the idols that we have. We ask that you would forgive our sin. Help us to persevere in our faith amidst persecution and help us not to sell out. And Lord, for those here who are doubting or struggling, please give strength and support. And Lord, we praise your name. Amen.